Lord, help us to live it. We love so many names and we're tempted to, mostly our own. Help us to love you above all and trust you enough to do what you say. Amen. Well, Sunday I was in Phoenix, but on Friday I was in Fort Worth. A pastor friend of mine in, in Fort Worth, Texas, invited me to preach to a gathering of men for something that I, I don't know if it happens, at least not in Orange County. It was called a beast feast. Anybody ever been to a beast feast? It's pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, these guys who love hunting go out and kill things and then barbecue them and eat them. There were about 500 men, and the purpose was twofold. Uh, the main idea first was to tell people the gospel, tell them about Jesus as Savior, and thank God. Uh, about 12 men, I think, trusted Christ that, uh, that evening, and that was the best and the most important part. They were also raising money for missions, uh, and a, a group that we partner with as well called MANA, and they did it in an unusual way. They did it with a raffle auctioning off all kinds of camping gear, and what caught my attention was they raffled off four shotguns. <laughs> I don't know if that happens in California. I'm not even sure if that's legal in California. But they had Mossberg and Savage, and all these guys looked like they knew what to do with the shotgun, and there was, you know, proof in the barbecue that uh, some of them at least were good shots. And it was just a very different look and feel from coastal Orange County. And it got me thinking about identity. As I looked around at this gathering of manly men, I said to my pastor friend, I said, you know, I see a lot more T-shirts representing gun rights and gun ownership and good marksmanship than I've seen probably in 11 years in California. And he looked around and said, yeah, there's probably about 75 guys around us carrying right now. Just a different look and feel in Texas. And it got me thinking about identity. And I told them in that gathering, and I'd like to run the same poll here, I told them that the worst year of my life by far was my first year of middle school. In the Texas system, when I moved from Mexico to, to my first year of middle school, and the way they ran it, it would have been seventh grade. So I ran a poll and asked, how many of you had a good first year of middle school. 500 guys, five raised their hands. Let's run the same test here. How many of you enjoyed, had a great time your first year of middle school? Anybody? Wow, schools in California must be much more welcoming than, uh, than Bonham Junior High School in Amarillo, Texas. I had a miserable time. To paraphrase Charles Dickens, it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. It was just flat out. <laughs> It was just bad. And I started thinking about the t-shirts and the beards and my seventh grade year and why that was so tough and everything it had to do with identity. In seventh grade, at 13 years of age, I was trying to figure out who I was exactly. And looking back, some of the attempts at finding that identity and making it clear to people were pretty embarrassing. In the space of two semesters, I was a kid who wore a Snoopy t-shirt. I know, right? You don't even know the half of it. The shirts showed a jogging Snoopy and said, chicks dig joggers. 
As it turns out, they didn't, at least, uh, <laughs> at least joggers that wore Snoopy t-shirts. Well, that, some of you are shaking your head with genuine sadness. It's okay. It's, it's been more than 30 years. I've recovered. It's, it's all right. That led to a cowboy phase, because my family on that side are ranchers and gun-toters and all of that, so I, I tried to wear lizard-skin boots for a little while. Had a quilted coat and walls with fur on the collar, and that didn't work either. I tried Dungeons and Dragons for a little bit. My mom put a stop to that. I even tried to wrestle. And a kid named Lane Meek, who happened to be ranked fourth in the state of Texas, put an end to that. And I, for a whole year, I tried to figure out who I was, and that's what made it so miserable. When we come to this portion of the Gospel of, John, uh, of Luke, what you'll notice in this really brief retelling of a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus is his father affirmed who Jesus was. Look with me in Luke chapter 3. You'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 3, please. Jesus' relative, John the Baptist, or the baptizer, has gone ahead of Jesus. He's been preaching hard for a nation that is very far from God to open their heart to Him, to be ready for Jesus' arrival. And in Luke chapter 3, we meet Jesus full-grown. It says in verse 21, Luke 3, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, don't miss that, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Why is Jesus being baptized? That's the first question I think I asked myself when I started reading the Gospel of Luke for myself, not just listening to it in Sunday school when I was a teenager. John was preaching for people to turn back to God and was baptizing them as a symbol, as a public ownership that they had been far from God but were now turning away from sin and going to walk with God. Why is Jesus being baptized? He's being baptized for our sake. He has no sins of His own to turn away from. He is fully entering the human experience because this is the miracle of the incarnation. He is God who has taken on flesh. And He's going to walk every step of our lives with this single saving difference. He's not going to sin. At no point is he going to be selfish. At no point is he going to say through his action or his attitude to God, I know better. I know what's right. I know what I'm going to do. He's being baptized, and as he rises from the waters of baptism, two astonishing things happen. There's a picture of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, a visible, apparently public Declaration from the Father that Jesus is now empowered for ministry, and a voice speaks from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What every child longs to hear from their father. This is the Son of God now walking on earth, and in front of everyone, God says to Jesus, Jesus, 
you're my son. I love you. It has the echo of Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God speaks looking forward of this moment and calls Jesus his servant and says of him, in him my soul delights. That's what everybody wants. That's his identity. Jesus didn't try on identities. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, speaking of his childhood, says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, and I don't understand this, I don't think anyone on earth can get their mind around that. At a certain point, Jesus, who was an actual human being, but also God in the flesh, fully stepped into his identity and know exactly who he was, where he was going, and where he had come from. In other words, all the questions that haunted me by the time Jesus is baptized are completely settled. And this is the Son of God. And then Luke does something that if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you've skipped or skimmed. When you look ahead, what comes next? Genealogy whole bunch of names. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And this is a genealogy that works its way backward, and Luke is telling you through several dozen names who Jesus is. Look to the end of the list, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Jesus is most and first of all the son of God. This is his identity. This is who he is. Then Luke 4, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that publicly anointed him at his baptism, that Holy Spirit. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And now we're fully in the realm of the supernatural, and there's absolutely nothing in our secular culture that accounts for nothing but matter, that tells you that matter is all that there is in every human experience, and impulse can be explained by chemical and electrical reactions. Now Luke brings you fully into a supernatural experience where Jesus is sent by the Father, driven out by the Spirit into a deserted place, in wilderness, to face hunger, and to face, most of all, temptation. Here, the spirit who tempted him, if we read all of Scripture, we understand the devil was an angel created by God for worship, who did something that I battle with every day. He desired to be God. He usurped God and was cast out. We're not given his name here. We're actually given a, a title. Devil means accuser. And for 40 days, Jesus is going to be in the wilderness, and I love the understatement of Scripture. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. I guess so. He's a man, and he's being tempted. You ever been tempted? It's an embarrassing thing to talk about. You wouldn't want to turn to the person next to you and tell them the things that tempt you but it's real. Temptation is an invitation. Sometimes it feels forceful and harsh. Other times it's appealing and inviting and welcoming. 
but it's a solicitation to step out of the will of God, to be God on your own, to tell God that you know better. After all, you've known yourself your whole life, and you know very well what you need. In Jesus' case, it's a direct attack on His identity. And this has so much to do with us. There's three, I think, temptations here that Luke tells us about. And Jesus' identity, the thing that was affirmed at His baptism, the thing that made me struggle in seventh grade, and the thing that you're going to question yourself time and time again as you enter different seasons of life, because in some ways the identity issue hopefully is settled by the time you're in your 20s or 30s or sometime. But every season of life forces questions of identity back upon us. The adolescent struggle is really well known. It leads otherwise sensible people to wear Snoopy t-shirts and lizard skin boots. And somewhere in those years, most of us want to date. And we put a lot of stock and identity and self-worth in the kind of people that we date if we're able to date. And then you get married and you have a whole new role. And then many of us are blessed with children, and boy, does that ever change your identity. I went from being Bruce Garn to being Ryan and Evan's dad, and I love that. I embrace that. And then the season of life we're in right now, one has already left the nest, and my wife are now edging into a new season where we're realizing that the other one who's acting very, very grown up and driving all across the Southland, well, he'll be leaving soon too. And questions of identity, who we are, what we're worth, how to navigate this season will come up again. And then if you're granted a long life, you start aging. And your health starts betraying you. And that brings up a whole other set of questions about identity. And all along this time, most of us are working and you get laid off, or you get a pay raise, or you get a pay decrease, or you can't find a job, and your identity is back in the middle of the mix. Luke wants to show you Jesus knows exactly who He is. His Father has affirmed it. He is exactly where God wants Him to be. And in this season, for our sake, for our salvation, He is being tempted by one whose identity is that of an accuser, a liar, a deceiver who points out false ways. Read these three temptations with me. These are three temptations to walk away from God. The devil said to him, verse 4, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. That sound reasonable to you? Let's read the Bible realistically. How long has it been without food? 40 days, the very limit of what a human being can endure. See, again, a secular mindset, a culture that for a lot of years has dedicated itself to eradicating the very possibility of the supernatural will make you read this story as symbolic. Luke, as a historian, wants you to know it's actual. A man was in the desert by himself for 40 days, and in those days, a deceiving, lying accuser appeared to him with this very simple invitation. 
If you are the Son of God, that's his identity, that's who you are. Since you can do this, do this simple thing. Command this stone to become bread. What's the invitation? Use your power for yourself. You know what you can do. Someone said to me after the first service, they heard a pastor preach this passage, and he said, Jesus could have replied, I could turn you into bread. He's got all the options. He has all power. And the invitation is simple. Use this power for yourself. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus answers from Deuteronomy. He answers from Scripture. He answers from your Scripture. The book you're holding, if you're holding a Bible or you're looking on your phone, contains the words of Scripture that were, came from the experience of Israel in the desert. Three times Jesus is going to be tempted. Three times He's going to reply from Scriptures drawn from the exodus of Israel. In other words, the point of their failure where they disobeyed God, where Moses died on the wrong side of the river before entering the promised land, Jesus is going to access those Scriptures and reorient His life away from this temptation and solidly into what God wants. And what Jesus is telling the devil is this, doing what God wants matters more. And that's quite a statement. Because if I take the Bible seriously, Jesus is dying of hunger. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. If you didn't eat for 40 days, candidly, in a group this diverse, many of you wouldn't make it. It would kill you. Everything I read about Jesus in Scripture, including the nature of His crucifixion and how He endured it, tells me He was a vigorous, strong man, but He is at the very end, and the temptation is this. You're God's Son. You're the one God promised. Your father surely wouldn't want you to starve, would he? You have astonishing power. Use it for yourself. At no point in his life, this is his example, at no point in his life ever was Jesus self-serving. You see how much distance that puts between Jesus and us? You know who I think about all the time? Me. I've taken a, I've taken a full psych test as part of seminary. I'm verifiably clinically not a narcissist, but I do think about myself all the time. You know what? You think about you too. Everything that enters into my experience, my first reaction, my first thought, is how is this affecting me? You got cut off in traffic. You're burning with anger. Why? Because somebody was selfish. Somebody steps ahead of you in a long line. Rights are offended. Identity is challenged. Jesus has compelling reasons to be self-serving. And what he says instead is, men do not live by food alone. Yes, I have that need. It is my right. I could do that, but doing what God matter, wants matters much more to me. Later in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus would explain it to his disciples like this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What Jesus is telling you is, is to know God and to live for him is life itself. And that is a very hard lesson for every disciple of Jesus to learn.
because every temptation is rooted in a legitimate need in your life. And if it's not tempting to you, it's simply because it's not your need. What comes next? The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all the authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Wow. All the kingdoms of the world, all their power, all their splendor in a moment of time, it would take Spielberg and Lucas together probably to try to visualize that moment. You know why people, and I'm not picking on her, it's just a very notable example, you know why people like Kim Kardashian have millions of followers on Instagram? It's actually not that hard to understand. It's mockable, but it's easy to understand. There's wealth. There's power. There's leisure. Same reasons you go to work, right? Just on a very large scale. In Isaiah 42, verse 2, Jesus was spoken of prophetically by Isaiah, and Isaiah said 700 years before his birth that Jesus was the one who was going to bring justice to the nations. He's the one who's going to rule. And in this election season, we would say, Jesus, we're ready, right? Justice, equity, truthfulness, honor, compassion. Read that later today, Isaiah 42. It says that people who are broken and nearly at the end, Jesus will not put out of their misery. He will restore, He will heal, He will save. The nations of the world will experience justice for the first time in their long human existence. And Satan says... We can do that right here, right now. You don't have to go to the cross. You can do one simple thing. You can worship. In Greek, it literally means to lower yourself. You can just give me the lead. And all the power, all the wealth, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. It's hard to know what to make of the devil's offer because the, the Bible does call him the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this world. But I think he's lying because that's what he does. I think he's actually offering something he cannot deliver because that's the very nature of sin itself. The temptation here is simple. Jesus is being invited to take a shortcut, to skip the pain and get the power. Isn't that the most natural thing in the world to avoid as much pain as you possibly can and get as much power and pleasure as you possibly can? You ever tell your child not to touch the hot stove? How many times did you have to tell them? One time until they did it, right? The reaction to pull the hand back if it's actually hot and it actually hurts them, that's a lesson learned forever. Most people orient their lives quite understandably to minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure. That's the draw of this particular temptation. Jesus knows already He is a servant who has come not to reign, not to rule at this time, but to serve to humbly walk in obedience to His Father, to follow Him eventually 
from the wilderness to the villages to Jerusalem and eventually to the cross. And the devil says it doesn't have to be that way. Just bow down for a moment. I'll give you the nations you were promised. And Jesus says something that's very important for all of Jesus' disciples to listen to, especially in these days. Jesus says, I have God's goals and I also follow His ways. The end does not justify the means. I will pursue the Father's will and I will pursue it in the Father's way. Boy, do we need to hear that. As people become more and more desperate in their discomfort, as they find it harder and harder to trust God, and that's what all of these temptations are about, whether to trust God enough to obey Him or whether to determine that this hunger, this need is so difficult, so severe, so long-lasting that I'm going to take a shortcut and go around my own way. A little word about that. All of sin's shortcuts are actually dead ends, every single one. But they all appeal to you that there's a shorter and more direct path, and whatever is appealing and continually tempting to you, whether it's pride that you simply can't get rid of, whether it's wrapped up with your sexuality, your, your discomfort with being single, or your dissatisfaction in the marriage that you already have, or your craving and need for popularity for people to affirm you as only God can do, and God alone can tell you best and most truthfully that you are His and that you are beloved, whatever temptation it is that draws you away from God, it always offers a shortcut, and that shortcut is always a dead end. One of the greatest lies ever told about God is that He is this sort of cosmic killjoy that hems His children in with all kinds of rules, and if you do God's, if you live life in God's way and in faithful obedience to Jesus, even when it's difficult, you won't have any fun and you'll be completely out of options. The opposite is actually true. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 45, one of my favorite scriptures to remind myself of when I'm considering a shortcut. It says, I will walk freely in an open place because I seek your precepts. Let me say that again. The psalmist said, I will walk freely in an open place. In other words, I'll roam, I'll walk freely and enjoy it for this single reason. I sought what you had to say. The lie is, if you heed God's rules, You'll be straitjacketed by this cosmic killjoy and you'll hate your life. The Bible says just the opposite. People who live life God's way, who faithfully follow Him, especially when it's difficult, will find with that increasing freedom, including peace of mind and a clear conscience. If you want to see the true nature of sin, I'd love for you to come with me the next time I go to jail or prison. There's a few places in the world, prison is one of them, that shows you the dead end of sin. Because no one in prison, no one who destroyed their marriage with unfaithfulness, no one who is beset by regret because they took every sexual liberty they thought the culture and willing, willing people would afford them, ever set out to restrict their options so badly that now they're not free at all. No one ever set out to do that. 
What does sin do? It invites you into something that it can't deliver, and it actually slowly restricts your choices until you have no choices of your own. Every time I walk away from God, I actually take freedom away from myself. And what God is always doing, what He's always working on is to draw you closer to Himself. The next temptation tells me that. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, Jesus responded, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. The third temptation, He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Notice He's gone right back to the identity piece. The first two temptations probe who Jesus is. The second one talks about what He does. In other words, what is being tested is everything He is. Everything that matters to us is being tested and tempted in the life of Jesus in this passage. He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple. That would have been a 450-foot drop approximately over the valley of Kidron. And said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What do you notice about Satan here? What's he doing? That was a very discouraging response. Um, What is it that he's doing here? He's quoting the Bible. You can find that in Psalm 91. The first two temptations in Luke's telling is, hey, here's a good idea. The third one, if possible, is even more subtle because it says, God made you a promise. The temptation here is, prove that God loves you. He spoke about you. He wrote about you. I read it too. You know that God said He'd protect you. His angels... He was once one of them. We exist to serve. You throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple, your Father who loves you, who affirmed you at your baptism, who manifested Himself publicly in your life while you spoke to Him after identifying with these worthless wretches you came to save, He's not going to let you destroy yourself. He said so. The temptation is prove that God will take care of you. People can use Scripture and use the idea in the name of God to justify all sorts of evil. I guess it's been about 15 years ago, no more, when I was on staff here, still in seminary. About a hundred yards from here, a dear friend of mine in this church tried to use Scripture to prove to me that it was time for him to walk away from his wife and into the arms of his lover. If that's laughable to you, I'll tell you why. Because you're not in the grip of that temptation. That's why. See, the temptations of others always look irrational. The dead end is apparent. The disaster that looms is very obvious to you. But the deceit is so deep that even Scripture can be used. Scripture was accurately quoted here. This is actually what God said. The error was that wasn't what God meant. And Jesus knew it, and that's why He answered. 
Jesus answered to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus says, I know that he loves me. I don't test him. See, at every point in every temptation that Jesus faced as our Savior, what is it always at issue? These are just three dimensions of the same question. Can God be trusted? The Bible tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? Because it's a personal relationship. You can't have a personal relationship with anyone, including the God who made you, unless you trust Him. The depth, the enjoyment, the beauty, the strength, the perseverance, the example of that relationship deepens as your trust in Him deepens. So I have no idea in a congregation this size, the first service was nearly full, this one is quite full as well. There's hundreds of you. I have no idea in which way you may be tested and tempted, but every single one will strike at the heart of who you think you are. It will make you doubt God. It will invite you to take shortcuts away from God's written and revealed word to you. It will tell you, in a nutshell, that you know best. And the people around you may easily see the ruse and the falsehood of that, but in every season, what God wants is you to trust Him. His priority isn't always necessarily your comfort. See, there's a false God that's being put out there that God cares most about you being happy. And it's patently not true because you as good parents know that you don't always prioritize your kid being happy about everything, right? If you left your kid to his own devices to do whatever made him happy throughout the day, hmm, you'd have a mess of a kid. In your limited wisdom, you know the path that you want your child to walk. Your heavenly Father who made you, He truly does know what is best. What Jesus is doing here is He is modeling for us what He desires from us, which is dependence upon God. At no point in his life, no matter how severe the temptations were, no matter what season of life the Father was walking him through, this is why he is our Savior. At no point did Jesus act on his own. That's his invitation to you as well. I don't know what your season is. I don't know what your test is. Candidly, if I'm reading the data right, for a lot of you, it has to do with sexual temptation. Whether it's with another person or it's living a life of fantasy online, you're being drawn away from a pure walk through your single time in life or from the purity and the enjoyment of your marriage. For others of you who are parents like myself, there's a constant temptation to flip our worlds around so that no matter what, our kid likes us and our kid is happy. Take your cue from Jesus, the Son of God. See, Will Willimon, who's a statesman to pastors, said something like this, Jesus doesn't exist to meet your needs, He exists to rearrange them. Once you meet Jesus, you'll have new needs that you didn't even know existed, things you didn't care about now matter a great deal to you because what matters is following Him, what matters is obeying Him. 
This question of identity is settled in Christ. Your job, your spouse, your kids, your friends, depending on how they treat you, will make you question your identity all of your life. What matters is who you are in Christ. This story is to model for us the total complete dependence that Jesus had in His Father in great moments when He was being baptized and speaking to His Father in prayer and hearing His Father's voice affirm Him. And when the Father was quiet and left Him alone in the desert where He led Him for 40 days to suffer hunger and hear all kinds of appeals to step momentarily out of the Father's will. What's this passage trying to tell us? We'll only obey God as far as we trust Him. Your season of blessing, the good things in your life or reflections of your Father's love for you to make your mind run from the blessing in your life back up to its provider to worship Him, to thank Him for it. If you're in a season of leanness and testing and trial, that is to draw you closer to your Father who loves you. See, no one in life sets out to ruin their life. Temptation lures you away one step at a time until you're completely out of options, and the first step toward disaster is a step of independence away from God. The invitation of Scripture and the beauty of Christ is He is your example of how to obey God, and best of all, this is the good news of the gospel, He is your cover and your Savior when you don't trust God and you step out on your own. I pray sincerely in the name of Jesus, and I have all week, that the temptations that are pulling your heart away from God, you'll see those in the light of your identity in Christ, and you'll trust God. Let's pray. Can I give you a moment just to yourself? You don't have to talk to anybody or look around at anyone. But take a moment of honest inventory with God. Where is your heart being pulled? Where are you being tested and tried? Would you talk to God about it and tell Him that you'll trust Him? The measure of trust is obedience. Jesus not only quoted Scripture, He went on to obey it. He went out to live out what it said. If you see danger signs already or you've fallen into sin, the good news is where you fail to follow Jesus' example, that's where He lives to be your Savior. So talk to Him about it. You can be honest with Him. He'll listen. He'll understand He was tempted in every way just as you are, but without sin. To provide a perfect example and to forgive perfect forgiveness when you don't follow that example. Lord, help us to call out to you in prayer. There are people in all different chairs around this family table we call Crosspoint. Some are wondering if they believe a word of it. They're just not sure. You love them. You came seeking them to tell them who you are. Help them take that initial step of trust and claim you and call you Savior. Others have walked with you faithfully for a long time but are growing weary and are looking at shortcuts in middle age. Others are nearly despaired of your love and faithfulness because of the hardships in their lives. 
I can't encompass that. I can't begin to imagine all the needs that are here. But help in all of those things. Help us to trust you, to simply take you at your word, to see what you've written down for us to know is true, and in simple personal obedience, put our priority on doing what you say. In Jesus' name, amen.